0: Today's episode is sponsored by Conqueror Final Conquest. Conqueror is a 3-6 to player strategy game that is set in 3rd century BC. You and your friends play as one of six nations battling for power to conquer and rule the ancient world. Form alliances, go to war, betray your friends, bribe your enemies, and recruit heroes to build an everlasting empire. And also be sure to check out Conqueror Duels, the free two-player expansion. Duels has five scenarios that allow you to relive the greatest military campaigns of the ancient world. Conqueror Final Conquest and its expansion are available now for just $49.99. You can find them both at ConquerorFC.com. And if you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. And just to speak from personal experience really quick, Andrew is a phenomenal marketer, his team, excellent group of people, super trustworthy. And in my last campaign, they literally helped me double the amount of money that I would have brought in by myself. You can look at the numbers that you can see, like I would have raised this and they helped me double that amount of money. So definitely worth checking out. Again, nextlevelweb.com slash Kickstarter.
1: Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast. A proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, We want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett.
0: What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're getting puzzly. We're talking about puzzles in games. What makes games so interesting when they have a little puzzle in there? We're talking to Shannon McDowell. Shannon, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, really excited for you to be here. You know, I saw a YouTube video that you put together not too long ago, and you were talking about escape rooms and how to create great escape room games and how to include puzzles and all the different things to be thinking about. And I just found it fascinating. And as I was watching that video, I thought, you know what? I need to have Shannon on the show. So I immediately sent you a message (laughs) and said, hey, come on the show. And you said yes. And so I'm so glad that you're here. And we get to break down so many different aspects and different angles that I feel like a lot of designers maybe they're kind of aware you know, that these things are going on in the design theory of their puzzle games and deduction games, but maybe they just don't have the right vocabulary or haven't been real intentional about the different aspects of it. So I'm just pumped to pick your brain about these many different things. You've been researching this for several years now and looking into all the different aspects of puzzles and games and whatnot. So yeah, I just can't wait to get into that. But before we get into puzzle games, who are you? How'd you get into game design, all that kind of thing?
2: Well, hi, I'm Shannon McDowell. I am a board game and puzzle designer. And I've been working for the last few years at Wilfrid Laurier University, which is in Brantford, Canada. And I've been studying cultural bias in escape rooms. So a lot of, a lot of puzzles and uh, a lot of playing board games as well in our spare time. But uh, I've been playing board games For most of my life, we were a pretty big board game family, you know, playing a lot of Cribbage and Crokinole and Triominoes and lots of the Ravensburger family games and all of those. So uh, yeah, that's, I designed my first board game when I was in grade five, I believe. And at the time, my teacher was like, you should get this published. This is amazing. And I was like, who publishes board games? Is that a job? No, it's not. So <laughs> that's that's where it started. And then, you know, within the last five years or so, I realized, oh, wait, people do actually do that. And that's when I got more into the board game industry and designing my own games.
0: Yeah, very cool. Okay, so as we jump in, let's get a good, like, working definition because you know a lot of times when when someone says puzzle what they mean is a thousand different little jigsaw pieces laying on a table that then you have to put together but when we're talking about puzzles in games what does that mean exactly like give me a good working definition to kind of frame our conversation
2: so when we talk about puzzles in escape rooms essentially the definition that i've been using and i believe this was originally from scott nicholson is a puzzle is a game with a winnable state So essentially, if you're playing a game and there is an objective state where this game is done and it's perfect and this is the highest score you can ever get, that's a puzzle.
0: That's a really interesting way to look at it. Okay, I think that definition is is excellent. Say it again. What is Scott's definition?
2: Um, A puzzle is a game with a winnable state.
0: A game with a winnable state. Yeah, I love that because it's not just defeat your opponent. It's not just have more hit points than the other person. They go down to zero and you've got at least one left. It's it's more to it than that. There's different pieces you're trying to put together and trying to understand whether it's a narrative and a story or maybe you know you just kind of set out the game at the beginning and it's got these different variables and you have to put them in the right order or the right places and then you win the game. Uh, that's a really good way to look at it and so why do you think these games are so popular you know a game like pandemic which has a very puzzly aspect to it one of the most popular games of all time like there's so many games clue you know where you're trying to to deduce down and figure out the different pieces and things going on and figure out what's missing like some of these games are just most popular games in the world why do you think that is what draws us to puzzly games
2: well puzzles are about seeing how clever you are and so puzzle games are a really safe way to be creative and explore and like feel smart <laughs> you really feel smart when you solve a puzzle game so you know even clue you get down to those last three cards and you're like i know the answer and it's just a really exciting moment and you see the same thing in escape rooms you know you're down to the last lock with 30 seconds left on the clock and then you just burst out it's it's about showing how clever you are. And especially with cooperative games, you really see that. But then with competitive, that one winner is the person who solves the puzzle the best out of everyone.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I can't remember, I can't remember who it was that came on the show a while back, but they talked about how, in general, the three things that people want to feel while they're playing a game is they either want to feel smart, they want to feel powerful, or they want to feel wealthy. Right. And so if you can really tap into one or more of those feelings, those emotions, then the game is much more likely to stand out to people and, and kind of draw them in. And you make a great point. The puzzle allows someone to feel or maybe the whole team, if it's co-op, whatever. But people get to feel clever, get to feel smart. They get to put those things into place. And I feel like also psychologically, our brains are drawn towards patterns and finishing patterns. And that's what a puzzle is. It's, it says, here's the pattern. It's missing some pieces. Put it together in the right order. And it, and your brain like really you know, is is drawn towards that. In your research, did you find anything like that that kind of talked about psychology of puzzle games?
2: Oh, we went into it a little. Um, Because I was looking at cultural bias, the goal of a, a puzzle is really to get the player to the end state. You want to get them to the winnable state. You know, an escape room is not the designer versus the players. The designer's not trying to make a game that's really hard, that players are going to struggle to complete. Their goal is to make the players feel smart and make them have fun. And if the game is too hard or the puzzles don't make sense, then the players aren't going to have fun. And so that was a lot of, I interviewed um, quite a few escape room enthusiasts. So these are people who have played sometimes upward of a thousand escape rooms if you can believe that and when they encountered you know poor puzzle design or cultural bias almost universally everyone said no i was confused i was frustrated it was disappointing i didn't enjoy it and of course that's not the results you want from your game you want people to have fun
0: yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting to think about as a game designer and what it looks like to be intentional, not just with the mechanisms and the theming and things like that, but also being aware of your, your different biases. I mean, we're all products of our own cultures, you know, and, and that's a multi-layered thing, right? So it's not just the country you're, you're from, but it's also the part of the country and the language that you speak in that part of the country and the dialect and how you grew up and did you have two parents or one? Like there's so many different things that kind of make up our different cultural you know, growings up, so to speak. And so let's dive into a little bit about the things you found in your research, especially as it relates to as a game designer and being intentional and making sure you're making uh, puzzles and making your games as widely uh, accessible as possible. Tell me what you found.
2: So some of the main takeaways, one is obviously language is a huge barrier. So anytime you can do language independent puzzles or games, that's a bonus, right? Because that's always going to be more accessible to a wider number of people. Um, Symbols as well. You have to be aware of what symbols mean across cultures and that can include colors. So, you know, I'm not, I didn't necessarily look at accessibility issues like colorblindness, but things like if you're using green to mean go and red to mean stop well that's not consistent across countries so you may find differences in how players from different cultures react to different colors and you know we found an example where a computer program had an x and you hit the x to cancel uh, um, cancel out of the window right but one group of players said oh no in our country You hit the X for enter to submit a form. So they were stuck on a puzzle for quite a while because they're like, well, we don't want to submit this. We want to close out. And they thought that the X would submit it. So there's things like that where um, I also looked at uh, norms. So things like what does a table setting look like? Um, What are taboos? in a culture. You know, do people take their shoes off when they're walking in a door or not? Those different types of norms that you may not think about because they're so ingrained in your own behavior. Um, Also objects. Someone spoke about an escape room that they did in a Nordic country, I forget which one, that was in a person's house and there was a sauna in the house And they said, well, apparently this is a common thing in this area of the country, but I have never been in a house that had a sauna in it before. So they didn't know how the sauna worked. They didn't know where it was or what it was when they encountered it. So they had problems solving a puzzle around it. So that can translate to board games as well, where What is the picture on your card? Do players know what that thing is and how it relates back to the theme of your game? Does it reinforce the theme or does it just confuse players?
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good point. This is something I've run into uh, personally with public speaking. So I've um, had the opportunity to travel to all sorts of uh, different places around the world and and speak and preach and do different things. And one of the things that um, I was trained on, I did a lot of public speaking training over the years, is be aware of your audience and be careful of idioms. Be, a care, be careful of certain phrases. Because if you say something like, oh, you really knocked that out of the park, and you're talking to a bunch of people who've never played baseball, they're not going to have any idea what you mean. Like, knocked out of the park, like, what, is that? Is that good? Is that bad? And so it's just something to always be aware of, uh, specifically when you're thinking through, okay, who is the target audience of my game? And let me make sure that this game is, is as uh, accessible to them as possible. Right. And, and then also when you're thinking through as a publisher, maybe, uh, OK, I want to license this game to other companies in different countries. They're going to translate it. Uh, OK, what do I need to think through maybe from a design standpoint or an art standpoint? Some art is offensive in some countries. So if you have a puzzle that's uh, based on a certain uh, style of art or an art piece or something like that, maybe you need to change it if you're you know, going to have your game translated into different languages or, or published in different places around the world. And just, again, it's something to be intentional about, be aware of. Don't just go out there and assume that you know it all and you're doing everything right, because maybe you are, but probably you're not. And so just being aware that these biases do exist and then working with people uh, who maybe are from those areas. I think uh, one of my favorite things I've seen online is people go into the Facebook groups and they'll say, hey, I'm looking uh, to talk to someone from this part of the world or this country or who speaks this language because I just want to make sure that my game, you know, isn't saying anything dumb or silly or offensive or anything like that. And, you know, hiring those people to help you translate a game into another language or or make sure everything is good to go, Uh, especially if you're in another country coming over into uh, the States and into English because there's just certain things that you need to be aware of. And so do you have any advice uh, as far as that goes, as far as making sure uh, your your game isn't stepping on too many toes or anything like that. Like anything from your research that you could kind of point to as a here are some best practices.
2: Well, I actually have an entire paper I wrote <laughs> that are all about best practices for avoiding cultural bias. So hopefully that'll be available soon. But in the meantime, um, the advice I would give is do lots of testing. So in board games, we call it play testing in escape rooms or puzzles they call it beta testing um just test with a lot of people test with people from different countries who speak different languages if you can test with people of different educational levels um and that will give you a good start to figuring out what is understandable and what is a little more difficult for players to understand
0: yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, before the show, we were talking about your hierarchy of puzzle games that you've kind of come up with. And I think it's a really good system that uh, will be helpful to a lot of designers if they can kind of start putting games into these different categories to really understand what kind of game you're designing. I know when I was first designing, way back when, I would just kind of design and I didn't think too much about the theory behind it. I didn't think too much about much else other than I want to make a game like this. Now, make it. And But the more I've become... Uh, The more I've gotten into game design and really understand the different aspects, like the deeper aspects, the more I really enjoy kind of breaking things down and understanding what else is going on way below the surface. And so let's talk about your hierarchy. Uh, You've got four different categories for puzzle games. And so tell me what those are and then let's jump into each one.
2: Sure. So... This is not conclusive. I'll just <laughs> have a disclaimer right up, up front, but this is how I like to categorize puzzle games. And it also, it gives you a good idea of whether the audience will like it depending on what type of audience and what type of puzzle game you're going with. Um, so the first one is pure puzzle games. So I start with the second is uh, replayable co-ops because co-ops are almost universally puzzle games. Um, Then I have competitive puzzle games uh, where everyone is essentially completing the same puzzle. And then competitive puzzle games where that have uh, variable input. So those are my, my four main categories. And from there, it moves on to games that have more like variable setup and more interaction
0: yeah gotcha all right so let's go through each one of those and give me some examples and tell me the different like different parts of that like what separates those games those types of games like what separates each category
2: okay so the pure puzzle games are co-op almost universally i would think Um, I can't think of one that's not. And these are games like your escape room games, your exit and unlock, um, games that are one playthrough and there's one solution. You can only play it once. These are not replayable games. Uh, So they're essentially games on rails. You solve a puzzle and then you solve a puzzle and then you solve a puzzle and you're following the designer's plan for this game in order to reach the ending. A lot of times there's a narrative involved. Um, some games are solely puzzles, but you know, the, the good ones at least make an attempt at a narrative. And so you're following the story straight through and that's why you can't replay them because it's a set number of puzzles and a set narrative. And once you've finished it, you finished it. Uh, the second type are replayable co-ops. So these are ones that have variable setups. So for example, Pandemic, where each game starts with a different setup, which makes it a different puzzle, but every game itself is a puzzle and players are going through the motions to try and figure out how to solve this particular puzzle. So I find that really interesting because players can do the same moves and but these games are not solvable necessarily. And actually, some deck setups for Pandemic may not be solvable. It may be impossible, even if players play perfectly, for them to win. And that's how, you know, it's a puzzle. So in that case, I those are fun uh, to design and to play. Because you really have to think about, are these games going to be the same all the time? Or is there enough variability in the setup? to make it fun every time for players to play. Uh, The next category is competitive games that are no interaction between the players and they all have the same input. So you'll see that a lot with roll and write games, for example, Welcome To, where every player has their own board, you flip the cards and every person writes what they think is the best answer onto their board. What do they think is the best placement? And so everyone is making their own decisions, but they all have the same input and it comes down to who solves the puzzle the best in the end, who gets to the answer first or who gets the highest score and solves it the best. Um, You can also look at number nine is one of my favorite of these types of games. Everyone has the same inputs at the same time, and the only difference is how they choose to play. And also Tiny Towns is a good example of this. And then the last category that I describe for puzzle games is competitive games that have variable input and usually a a little bit, you know, small to medium amount of interaction. So these could be more abstract games that you would think of they're almost they're the games that i usually hear called puzzly you know when people are describing games oh this one you know requires a lot of thinking it's very puzzly so the most recent of those that i've played is calico um which i had a friend complain that it's it hurts his head it was too much puzzle for him uh so a lot of times These variable inputs are because players are drafting or because they're doing worker placement and they still have their own board that they're completing the puzzle on. But maybe each person's board is slightly different or they're getting slightly different pieces, Um, but there's very little that you can do to influence someone's board. So this would also be like patchwork would be an example or azul, although that's the high end of interaction, I would think, because you can really mess with people with Azul.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really wonderful way to break down the different categories in you know inside puzzle games in general. Now, a lot of those games you're, you're talking about, uh, they have a tendency to, to burn players' brains, like you're saying, yeah. and create a lot of analysis paralysis. Because, I mean, if it's a puzzle, then in theory, there is a perfect move each turn, right? There is one one move that's better than all others. And so sometimes people get bogged down in trying to figure out what that one is and you know they take forever on their turn. And so uh, in your research or in your, your designing any of that, uh, how do you deal with that? What are your thoughts on ways to uh, keep players from just sitting there staring at the board and not doing anything?
2: So how most of these games solve it is by only giving you small pieces of information at a time. So for example, I'll use calico because that's the most recent one I've played but you only have a choice you have two tiles in your hand you play one onto your board and then draft another from I think three that are out there out um, in the center for all players so that makes it really easy because you have very limited choices so yes it's a puzzle but you're limiting your choices to what do you place on the board right this instant? And it can still be brain-burning, but they did a really good job of of cutting down all the different choices you have so that there's, there's enough choice there, but not enough to really make you sit there and stare at it for half an hour. Um, and if you make a mistake, it's pretty easy to work around it.
0: Definitely another angle I think a lot of these games really do a good job with is not giving you too much information. Like you're saying, not too many choices, uh, but they also, they don't give you perfect information. So like with pandemic, you you might know that, you know, the Atlanta card is in there somewhere. It's somewhere in the, in the next six cards, but you're not entirely sure where in the next six. And so you, then you have to make your, your choice or do your actions based on knowing, the Atlanta card might come up next next card and it, we might lose the game or it might come up, you know, five or six cards from now. And so we've got a little extra time. And so you've got that imperfect information that then you're trying to put the puzzle pieces together in the way that you hope things turn out, but you don't have the perfect information to know exactly. Okay. Well, Atlanta's coming up next. If so we're going to do this, we're going to do that and the other, and the game's kind of solved. It still gives you that tension uh, because you're not entirely sure. And so you can kind of mix tactical and, and strategic choices in in together, right? So you have the tactics yeah. of okay, I'm going to take this, make this choice right now from this turn, and I hopefully these other things are going to come out, these tiles are going to come out, these cards are going to come out. I think they are. Here's the odds, here's the percentages, whatever. And and so I think that's another great way to kind of keep players uh, not sitting there and just staring at their cards.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that kind of the input randomness is really necessary to keep a game fun, and that's what differentiates these puzzly games from pure puzzle games that are only one-time play. Um, It's that randomness. And if you don't have that randomness in games, then you do not have any variability. And players, there's no need for them to play it multiple times because they'll have the answer right after the first time. So I think that's really important. And the puzzle games that I like the most are the ones where they do a really good job implementing that randomness so that it's still a puzzle and you're not quite sure what's coming up next, but you're able to deal with it enough in advance and you still have enough choices to have the best outcome that you can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the difference between puzzle games and then games that just have some puzzle aspects. You know, Before we uh, hit record, we were talking about Carcassonne and, and games similar to that. They're, they're not exactly puzzle games, but they've got some cool puzzly things going on. So what's the difference and, and what are some of the more uh, interesting aspects of, of games that aren't puzzles, but then are kind of puzzly?
2: For me, it's the level of interaction. So the more interaction between players, the more another player can interfere with your play the less that it is a puzzle game. So you've got games like Carcassonne, right? Because you're playing on a common board, there's a lot of interference that happens. So your puzzle is not going to come out perfectly due to your plan because other players are interfering with what you want to do by placing their tiles. So, and you'll see the same thing with, you know, I mentioned roll and rights tend to be very puzzly games Well, if you look at silver and gold, um, and that one's Pandasaurus, I believe, that one, because players are also choosing cards at the same time that they're writing on, then you're interfering with other people's game. So they may not get the cards they want. They may not get the score that they want because um, of what's getting taken. So that one veers away from the pure puzzle into higher levels of interaction. Um, And then, of course, on the very, very opposite end, you've got games like Magic the Gathering, um, where pure player versus player games are never going to be seen as puzzle games because every move you're responding to what the other player is doing. And you can plan a certain amount in advance, but there's, there's no puzzle there. It's just how do you beat that person?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So a lot of times these games will have like a hint system. They'll have a way to kind of help you along to maybe know some of the pieces or some things are coming next, obviously an escape room, you know, you, you almost have to have something like that, or otherwise it just might be way too hard for, for certain players to be able to play it. So tell me about hints and how to kind of put those systems into the game so that the game is still fun and you're not just giving everything away, but at the same time you're helping players figure things out.
2: Oof. Hint systems vary so differently for pure puzzle games. Um, and you need them because if players don't have a chance to get a hint, then if they're stuck on a puzzle, they're stuck in the game and they can't continue. So you have to have a hint system. But, oh, there's so many so many different ways to implement it. So... Um, I don't even know that I could go through all of them.
0: Just give me, uh, give me some of your favorites.
2: Okay, well, the escape room style card game that I designed just had hints on the back of the cards. So anytime you weren't sure what to do with a card, you could flip it over and it would tell you what's going on. Um, and it gave you hints in increasing levels of detail. So you, it starts with, you know, this card goes with this card. And then at the very end, it says, you're looking for an answer that is five letters about this topic. Um, Then you also have games that implement apps. And that's probably one of the smoothest ways to implement hints, just because then players can't read all the hints. So you've got like Unlock, for example, has their app that goes with the game. Um, Some games have numbers on the card and you can look it up in a book and it'll have a hint as to what to do with that piece um i actually i like it when games don't need hints necessarily where you can try different things and figure it out on your own but that is less realistic i think for a pure puzzle game you need some kind of hint because it doesn't matter how easy you think your puzzles are. There will always be a player that does not understand what you're trying to get at.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One thing I'm, I'm actually working through right now, I've got a narrative-based game. It's got a ton of story, you a know, ton of choices and things going on. But uh, there's lots of puzzles in it. But the puzzles uh, don't hide anything that has to do with the main story. So the if you run into, like, let's say you go to a cave and you're on a side mission, side quest, and you run into this puzzle, and you have to figure out what to what to do. And maybe you can't figure it out. Well, you, you didn't lose the game. Uh, you just maybe didn't pick up that really cool item that you would have gotten through the side quest, or you didn't meet that extra character or something like that. But then you can always go, well, I can't figure it out, and just jump right back on the main storyline and and continue progressing through the game. And so, you don't necessarily need a hint system because you're not hiding anything, you know, important. Uh, so that's one way that that I'm kind of working right now to handle it. Uh, yeah. But when it comes to narrative, go ahead.
2: Well, I was just going to say, have you played any of the, I think they're called the Coded Chronicles games?
0: I have not. Tell me about those.
2: So they've got the Scooby-Doo one and The Shining, and they just ah. recently came out, and I helped playtest the Scooby-Doo one. So those are fun because they're the similar type where you eat, every person plays a different character for Scooby-Doo. And then you go and you interact with things in this room. And you go, uh, depending on what you interact with, you go and find that line in the book and read the narrative for that section. And it's very interesting because you can get right to the end of the game and not necessarily have any idea who the bad guy is if you didn't interact with the right objects. So I find that interesting because you can, it's, It's a great example of a game, again, like you said, that doesn't need hints because you're just exploring the narrative. And if you don't happen to talk to the right person, well, then I guess you missed out. Um, It's the same with a lot of deduction games are like that too, You know, like Chronicles of Crime. If you don't talk to the right person, then you're not going to get the hints you need to figure out the answer in the end.
0: Very cool. Yeah, I like that a lot because the end of the game is going to happen. You know, it's not like some games where if you get stuck, you could literally be there indefinitely. Uh, I'm looking at you, the first scenario in Time Stories, where (laughs) it had that crazy, uh, it was a really good puzzle, really good, but also kind of challenging. And you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't do anything until you completed that puzzle. You could not move on with the game. And so there might be people out there, you know, still that haven't finished that first scenario because they couldn't get past that puzzle. And I mean, that's one way to do it. I'm not going to say that's a wrong way, but I personally would much rather know that the end of the game is going to come and I might lose. I might not figure out who the villain is or, or, you know, what murder weapon they used or whatever, but I know the game is going to end and I'm going to at least have a chance uh, to win based on my own cleverness.
2: It gives me feelings of playing Myst as a child and having no idea how to get to the next section.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And that was before the days of just going online and saying, Hey, how do you do this? You know, I don't, I don't know that there were all the, uh, the Reddit boards and all that, the Facebook communities that could help you, you know, uh, back then. And so, yeah, just something to think about as a, as a game designer. Now, as far as those narrative based games go, any other thoughts, any other ideas or best practices or or things you've seen in other games or any other systems that that stand out to you as being really interesting puzzles or puzzly type things?
2: Well, I will say I like the games that take a note from the old school computer adventure, like text-based adventure games. So where you have different inputs and it allows you to explore, but very limited. Um, I find, uh, for example, escape room, like remote escape rooms have grown in popularity during this pandemic because, you know, most escape room physical locations weren't open. So people started doing remote escape rooms and those have really grown and you're seeing different styles in those as to how players can interact with the game, whether that's um, having a live avatar, so an actual person helping you through, whether there is a website with a hint system. Um, I forget which escape room board game creator it was who said their first Indie game that they sent out. They had it was an actual, their actual phone number that people could text for hints, and they did not realize that this game would go all over the world, and so they were getting texts for hints at like three in the morning, and uh, that wasn't great. <laughs> but yeah, I think there's there's different ways to go about it. Um, sometimes you can have an app or a website, which is really the smoothest, but I don't know how much that interferes with having a pure board game. Uh, I don't know. I'd say just make sure that the process or the technology that you use is accessible to people. Um, Allow people to pass the games on if they're one-time play uh, so that You know, they can potentially get their value out of it or just keep the games as low cost as possible, especially if they're one time play.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk about deduction games. You know, they're very puzzly in nature. But before we dive into that, why why do deduction games kind of fall under this puzzle umbrella?
2: I find that deduction games have very similar categories that I outlined for puzzle games. And that's where originally I had deduction games included in my puzzle categories. And then I realized, no, they can be divided out and they're a separate category of games on their own. Um, And, you know, everything from the pure deduction to the types of games where players make the answer occur where there is actually no planned answer at all. And it's it's so interesting. It was something I just started looking into as I started to design my own deduction game a few weeks ago and realized, oh, wait, there are different categories of deduction games and each of them plays very differently and you would probably appeal to different markets. So it was very interesting to look into and it's definitely related to puzzle games because you're still coming up with that one answer which is similar but yeah
0: yeah so let's let's break down each category it's another one where you have four different categories so tell me about each one and tell me some examples of of games in that category
2: yeah so I started with pure deduction games and so those are the games that you can play once they have one answer they're typically co-op games again So those are games like, you know, Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective or Chronicles of Crime, where there is a definite answer and you're exploring the story. Um, Most of the examples I could think of of these are fairly narrative heavy. You're really trying to discover the story and then deduce the clues from there to come up with the right answer. Um, And this is where I find it different than puzzle games, where... Deduction games almost allow you to explore the world a little more, whereas puzzle games tend to be a little more structured. There are specific puzzles and there are specific rules that you follow to solve them, whereas deduction games, you could go completely in the wrong direction, like with Sherlock Holmes. Maybe you have no idea what's actually going on and you just take a wild guess at the end. Um... And that's possible to do with deduction games. Puzzle games generally are a lot more structured and you come out with the right answer. Uh, The second category, I consider hosted games. So games where one player knows the answer and they are trying to lead the other players to the correct answer. So those are games like Mysterium, you know, where the ghost is attempting to deliver messages, and the puzzle is all about interpreting what the messages are and trying to figure out the answer from there
0: this category has one of my favorite games of all time which is deception murder in hong kong and i absolutely love the puzzling nature of this because if you're the the csi person then you're you're placing the clues down trying to get everybody else to to guess who the murderer is and so it's just really cool because like as that that player you're creating the puzzle. You're you're trying to put the puzzle pieces together in the right order in the right places. And everybody else is staring at that and all the other variables, trying to understand what puzzle what puzzle is this? You know, and so it creates some really funny moments when some people just totally mess it up and don't understand anything about the puzzle pieces that are putting in you're putting in place. And sometimes you, you click and, and people know exactly what you're trying to say and they, they solve the puzzle right off. And so I love the the nature of that deduction game, uh, especially. I, I think, I don't know, personally, I, I really, I'm really drawn to those kinds of games because again, people get to feel clever. The person in that role gets to feel smart if they do it right and other people get to feel smart if they you know, can figure it out. So yeah, I really like those.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a party game too that's similar and I am terrible at remembering names of games, but where one person has a word and everyone else is trying to guess the word by asking yes and no questions, and I got stuck because my word was glass. So people were asking, is it in a kitchen? Yeah. Is it on the outside of a house? Yeah. <laughs> and I, and <laughs> I felt so terrible because I was going, well, technically, yes, but I'm talking about two different items here.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, you got to be careful with uh, the synonyms. Synonyms can really mess you up there. Yeah. Or the uh, homophones, I guess. Uh, yep. Yeah definitely. All right, let's jump back in. What's number 3?
2: Okay, number 3 is elimination deduction games. So these are games like Clue or Outfoxed where you remove the answer from the deck of cards usually at the start of the game and then the rest of the game is players trying to eliminate all the other answers in order to get down to the right one. So those are those are fun and I do see that a lot in kids games, um, the elimination style because it's it's a very good learning opportunity for kids, uh, learning how to eliminate answers and come to the correct one. And then the last one is the forced answer. So those are deduction games where the solution is based on the player's actions. and there is no one solution at the start of the game, but as players play, they force the answer. So games like Cryptid, and I know before we started recording, you mentioned Tobago too.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's one of my favorites. Uh, I, lo- I just love the puzzling nature of that game because you get to kind of create the puzzle as, as you see fit or maybe as is most beneficial to you as you're riding around this island and you're playing cards and you're trying to place treasures on the island and so you'll play cards that say, okay, the treasure is two spaces away from a palm tree. The, uh, the treasure is not in a mountain area. The treasure is on the beach. And you're, you're basically creating all these variables that will eventually lead to only one possible place that that treasure could be. And then you're trying to get there first and and pick it up in your little Humvee, your little Jeep. And uh, yeah, I just love the nature of it as, as you're playing cards and, and everybody is competitive. And so everybody's kind of playing cards on different places. And, and you're basically narrowing down where the treasure could be. It's, it's a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, those are... That's such an interesting style of game. I've I've tried to design my own like that and have not managed it yet. So <laughs> kudos to those designers who can make those games work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, tell me about some of your other design challenges. You mentioned that you're uh, working on a deduction game. I know you worked on Uh, escape room games tell me some of the the things you've run into that you've had to figure out how to overcome and and maybe some things that you know looking back now as you become a more experienced designer you know you're like looking at yourself a while back going oh how can I how could I've made that silly mistake so tell me about some of the the challenges and obstacles you've run into
2: well specifically with um, escape room board games for example I've learned how to do a more a narrative structure to the puzzles and it's interesting because just as with a story, you have, you know, the, the introduction and then the rising tension and then the climax, and then it drops off at the bo- at the end. You want to do the exact same thing with puzzles. So for example, your intro puzzle to an escape room game should be very easy. It should be one of the easiest puzzles in the game to get players into it, because if they get stuck on that very first puzzle, that doesn't bode well for the rest of your game and them sticking with it. And then from there, you can let the puzzles get more and more difficult until right before the end, you have like your hardest, most clever puzzle that players can really, at this point, they're all warmed up and they can really be like, Yes, we got this really difficult one. And then right there, the tension drops off, and your last puzzle again should be relatively easy. So lead them out of the game with an easy puzzle right at the end. So usually, I have that really difficult, challenging puzzle maybe two puzzles before the end of the game, two to three puzzles, and then the last couple are fairly easy. So that was an interesting thing to figure out, and I still I'm ha- not sure that I've managed having an easy intro puzzle because that is another piece of advice. Your puzzles are never as easy as you think they are. <laughs> <laughs> they are always more difficult. Um, and the ways to make puzzles easier is to add more information so that players have more to work with and less to figure out. So that is that is the one tip that I've learned for making puzzles easier. Um, and I would say, make sure you have a clean system. The, for example, the main mechanic, the core loop of your puzzle game or your deduction game, the simpler it is, the less players have to do, the more they can concentrate on the puzzle or the deduction, the mystery, which I'm assuming is supposed to be the most fun part of your game. So you wanna make sure that players can easily understand what they're doing either on their turn or during a round and that it's very simple. You don't want them to have to move a lot of pieces or you know, shuffle too many cards and sort tiles. You want them to be able to get into it pretty quickly on their turn, not a lot of upkeep. Um, so that then they can focus on the puzzle or the mystery. And then that's the fun part. That's what they're going to remember about the game. Um, But then again, I I also lean towards very streamlined games. So that may be my own bias poking in there.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point though. Now let's talk about things to be aware of when you're designing a game for, for smaller player counts, you know, for maybe a solo game or just a couple of people versus a game that does have, you know, five, six, seven. Sometimes these escape room games have a ton of people in them. You know, if you're talking about the, like the actual locations and you're going in there with a big group of friends and, and figuring things out. So what do you have to think about as a designer as far as player counts and making sure the game's not too hard, not too much of a cognitive load? Tell me what you're thinking.
2: So I'll start by talking about large games. Um, those large escape room games, I've played a game that had 20 people in it for escape rooms. Um, how they dealt with that was Everyone was divided into groups of five and then each group of five got their own separate part of the game. So we were all in different rooms working with our group of five until we finished. And then at the very end, we came together to solve the last puzzle. So really, (laughs) escape rooms do not work well. And puzzle games generally don't work well for co-op at any more than Six, I would say. Otherwise, you have to split up groups because you'll have someone sitting in the corner having nothing to do. Um, It's very hard to have that many streams, uh, like puzzle lines going on at the same time so that everyone is engaged. And then when you drop down to smaller player counts, like honestly, most, I think almost all of the escape room board games I've played, I've played with either one or two players. And that's ideal. It's nice to have a few people to play with because then if you get stuck, hopefully someone else has an answer or you've got someone else to bounce ideas off of. Um, But also, if you're going to be going with smaller player counts and that's your goal for your game, I would make sure that you have a more linear game. So this is something I do when I'm planning my puzzle games is I draw out a puzzle dependency chart and um, you can google these find them online I got the idea from watching old like Zelda games and analysis of those (laughs) and so puzzle dependency charts are basically they have circles or icons for each clue that a player will find icons for each gate or lock a player is opening, and then they all lead to each other. So you can see what is the path of the game, where will players go within the story, and how are they going to solve things. And then you can also make sure that a clue you need to solve a lock is not locked behind that lock. Um, And the more players you have, the more you want multiple lines of puzzles. So that possibly there's four locks available at one time or six locks. If you're only going for smaller player counts, then you can do a more linear game. Or if you're designing a game for kids, um, you want a more linear game so that you're only working on one puzzle at a time and then the puzzle dependency chart becomes a straight line from clue to lock to clue to lock. So that's probably... But the biggest advice I would give is to see what the structure of your game is and make sure that that corresponds with your audience. So in the the puzzle games that I've designed, the I have three different escape room games. The easiest one is very linear. Uh, it splits off, I think, once, but then all comes back together. The hardest game is very non-linear. You get a ton of information all at once, and it it has been interesting playing that with different groups, because if people aren't used to puzzle games, they get very confused and have a hard time telling what clues go together and what they solve. So that's where you want to be careful not to overload people with information, and a linear path can definitely make an easier game.
0: Yeah, that's really, really good advice. Another thing I think people should be aware of from a designing and, and publishing standpoint is just the uh, the components. Like you can only have so many cards in a box. You can only have so many things in a box uh, before the price gets out of hand. And like we talked about before, a lot of times you can't charge that much for these games, especially if it's just a one-time play and now you know all the secrets, you know the answers. So you just give it away to your other, you know, your other friend group or something like that. Uh, and so just realizing, okay, if if you want a game to have lots of players, then you might have to have lots of cards or, you know, because if you've got a poker size card with, you know, the 10 point font or whatever it is, and you got six people around that one card trying to read it, trying to figure out the picture or whatever it is, it might not work super exactly. well. So it's just another design challenge is the components that actually go in the box.
2: Yeah, you can, uh, if you go on Kickstarter Basically, anytime, you can see a whole bunch of puzzle games that are one-time play. Sometimes they have modules for multiple play. And um, I know there's one on there right now that I really want, but you build a dollhouse with electricity to and solve the puzzles that happen within this haunted house, and it is a little out of my price range but it's so pretty uh like who doesn't want to get a flat packed dollhouse that then they build and solve mysteries in
0: yeah absolutely and this is october so i'm assuming there's like a creepy haunted house kind of thing going on
2: oh yeah yep i think there's it's just there's so many cool ideas out there and a lot of people especially if You know, they have, they're able to manufacture it themselves, a lot of indie products coming out, but it's it's really hard to have a puzzle game beyond just paper and pen that is affordable for people for one-time play.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, Speaking of a dollhouse and and haunted, you know, things going on in October and whatnot, let's talk about theme. How can you interweave a theme for a game into the actual puzzles so that things make sense and and maybe players are able to deduce down different answers or things like that based on the theme? Tell me about that.
2: So I always start with a theme for puzzle games, especially, and it's almost less a theme and more of a narrative. What's the story? Story. You always need to start with a story and you need to know what the end conditions are. Um, so, my particular process for designing puzzle games is starting with the narrative. So, maybe the narrative is a haunted dollhouse, like you said, and there was a little girl who died, and this is her favorite toy, and something about that. So Then from there, you have to figure out what type of objects would be in this setting. If this is the narrative, what would you find there? So if you've got a little girl's playroom that you're investigating, you've got all kinds of toys. Maybe you have a rocking chair. Maybe you've got some books. Maybe you have um, ribbons and hair ties. You know, you have to figure out what is in this room. Maybe there's a handmade quilt. And then you figure out from there, what of those objects can you use to make puzzles out of? Um, and it's also important. So again, this is based on a Scott Nicholson paper. Um, he always says, ask why. So why is that puzzle there? Why is that object in this place? Who designed that puzzle? Who who are the players? Why are they Solving these puzzles. And so that's really important. So, for example, did the little girl create these puzzles to lead people to her killer? Did the killer create these puzzles in order to obscure the little girl's death? You know, are the players investigators? Are they people who bought this house after the family moved out? You really have to consider what's your story um, and what's going on. And then develop your puzzles organically from that. And then that's how you create the narrative because in all of these objects, you learn more about the characters. Um, It doesn't need to be an entire journal entry that you're reading. It can be simple things like, oh, you found a piece of paper that is a permission slip from school. And maybe there's something like, the little girl couldn't go on a class trip because she was ill. So she didn't get her permission slip signed. And then there's a little piece of information. Oh, I wonder if she was frequently sick. Why was she frequently sick? You know, and there's, there's different ways to include the narrative art as well. Um, you can include art in your game. If it's going to be more on paper, um, the Exit games do a fairly good job of this, of having a lot of art that gives you little details that tell the story. So, yeah, there's a lot of ways once you've figured out what your narrative is to include that in the game and really bring out the story without literally having players read the story.
0: Yeah, as a designer, this is also where you can have a lot of fun, you know, going in and really coming up with thematic. Puzzles, thematic questions and answers, and things like that that really play into getting a, a player into that headspace of of where they are where they are, right? Really getting immersed into the story, and then that helping them to to crack the codes and crack the the puzzles and things like that. That's a lot of fun, personally. I think as a as a designer,
2: yeah, it's also some a fun thing you can do as well as is create playlists for your game, so that when players are playing, they have atmospheric sounds going on in the background. And I know there are people who have Spotify playlists for different board games that uh, you can look up and then they play those in the background to set the scene. And I think that's a really cool idea.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, as we start to wrap things up, let's talk about playtesting. You know, it it can be very challenging to playtest uh, some kinds of puzzle games because once a person plays it, they know all the answers, right? They 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 don't uh, they don't do you much good when they play it again because they just run through everything and they finish the game in five minutes. And so, tell me about playtesting and maybe some best practices and things that you've seen or, or things that have worked for your uh, particular process in the realm of you know testing your games.
2: So for escape rooms and for pure puzzle games, I tend to start small. Um, I play test one puzzle at a time. And I'm lucky that I live with my sister and she is not a puzzle person whatsoever. So I can give her a puzzle and all the pieces and she'll tell me, oh, do I have to do this and this and this with it? And I'll be like, yes, you got it. Okay, this is good for entry-level puzzles. (laughs) Um, And then from there, once you've tested single puzzles you can go on and start testing sections of the game with people. And of course, you need to have different groups for every section because they can't retest. Um, and at one stage, once I have the game fairly well down and I've tested with a lot of beginners, I'll go and test with designers and puzzle people. People who are have played... So many puzzle games and are really great at solving them because then they can get in and see, say, okay, yes, we can solve this puzzle, but maybe this color doesn't quite work, or you want to reword this so it's more clear, and they can give a little more detailed examples for refining the puzzles. Um, Working at Laurier, I helped out um, with a lot of the student teams, and organizations would hire teams of students in the game design program to design games and escape rooms for them and so i got to observe that process and assist them with testing their puzzles and organizing their games and i yeah definitely the number one advice i would always give is cut back on the information and make your puzzles easier because i can almost guarantee that it will be too hard for most people
0: yeah Absolutely. Well, Shannon, this has been excellent. Do you have any closing thoughts? Like what would you tell somebody who's listening to this? Maybe they're working on a puzzle game, or maybe they've got some ideas now, kind of going through their head about, oh, I could do this or that. What would be your your kind of closing thoughts as far as puzzle games or, or games with puzzles in them?
2: I would say just think about what type of game do you want to make and make, this may sound obvious, but make the best version of that game you can. So really think about Every piece that's in that game and every piece of information, why is it there? What purpose does it serve? Can your game do without it? Does it need something else to supplement it? Um, And again, maybe this is just me wanting very simple streamlined games, but especially if the focus of your game is on a mystery or a puzzle, you want to make it clear to players what they have to do at each step. So there are lots of resources out there for puzzle design. I would say go after them, you know, start reading. Um, If you want to design difficult puzzles, go look at blogs from the MIT Mystery Hunt. Those are some of the hardest puzzles that you'll ever come across. And they're a lot of fun as well. And if you want easy puzzles, you know, there's lots of escape room games out there to play. And those are some of the most interesting physical puzzles and simple observation puzzles that nonetheless are a lot of fun to play with. So there's a huge range out there and just figure out what your goal is and go for it.
0: Awesome. Well, Shannon, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with the puzzle games I know you're working on and all the papers that you're writing and uh, everything else you got going on right now.
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, Keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?